Objects to observe in the April 2023 night sky on episode 315 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love going out under the night sky. And this podcast is anybody else likes going out under the stars. So this month we're going to talk about Mercury, Venus, and an interesting asterism. But first, Shane, how was your week? Did you get any astronomizing in? Well, not eyes to a telescope, unfortunately. Uh, we had a pretty good night, Friday night, uh, to to do some astronomy. It was clear, temperatures were pretty decent. But man, my week at work took all of the energy out of me. I was in training for four straight days that started at 6.30 a.m. local time. <laughs> so I really had no energy Friday night. But what I did this weekend is... Um, just sort of reorganizing a couple of my uh, astronomy cases that haul my gear to like any sort of remote observing site with the addition of the Nexus digital setting circles computer, you know, now I need to carry that thing out. And I would always have a red dot finder on my telescopes, but with the setting circles, I don't really need that anymore. So on the uh, TAC TSA 102, I'm going to mount the little mini Borg 50 on it just for some wider field views. So, you know, it's another piece of gear then that goes in the case. So uh, I just reorganized uh, how I carry that stuff. And I have a, a Pelican case that has like the Velcro divider. So you can kind of readjust it based on the gear you're carrying. So just messing around with that. So I'm ready for success. That's as far as I got. How about you? Uh, I know you were observing, I think, Friday night. Yeah, I get out just in my driveway. I had a good view of Venus and its clouds, our moon and Uranus too, and all just from my driveway because you know the roads are all such a mess of frozen muck these days that I just didn't really want to go driving around on them. Last time I did that, just end up having like cars driving by us every 15 to 20 minutes, like just, just enough to be annoying. And once I can get off the road 20 or 30 feet, it's fine. But I don't think that the fields are solid enough to to drive along the ungraveled grid roads yet at this time. Your observation of Venus was interesting. You talked about some color variations yeah. uh, with the cloud and the disk and kind of the polar region. Do you want to share some of that? Venus is one of those targets, I think, that most people just, just look at with their eye. They might put a telescope to it a little bit, but I really want to encourage people to take another look at Venus, Shane. And I think you were one of the people that really kind of inspired me to do that. I think you, you told the story once about going observing with with your brother and actually starting to see some features on that. Do you remember that? Yeah, I posted it to Cloudy Nights. This was a number of years ago, but my brother, who's not an observer, uh, but has an interest in looking through the telescope, uh, was visiting. The sun had set and it was just past twilight. And I had my 120 millimeter Skywatcher ED set up and we we're going to do some basic observing from the backyard. And I started with Venus. I can't remember. I think I was using my Leica Zoom Aspheric eyepiece. And I don't remember the magnification that I was using. It was very clear to me when I was looking at Venus that there was sort of like a sideways V feature on it. And like, it wasn't hard to see, at least in my mind. I also know some of us astronomers, you know, we get creative, uh, creative imaginations. And sometimes we see things that are not there. So it was really nice that my brother was right beside me who, again, no experience really observing. He looked through the eyepiece and I didn't say anything about the V that I saw. And I asked, are you seeing like any subtle features, you know, on the planet itself? And he described it too. He said, yeah, there's kind of this sideways V. What is that? And I said, well, 
I have no idea. I think it might be Venus clouds, but I'm not sure, you know, if that's even possible, like to be perfectly candid. So anyway, posted it on cloudy nights. Some people said, oh, yep, you can observe clouds. Uh, and that's what you saw. Others said, there's no way you can see them visually, you, you know, must be some other explanation. But since then, you and I have done a, a fair amount. You and I have both uh, observed clouds on Venus with different apertures of telescopes on multiple different nights. Yeah, I've I've really dedicated myself to uh, to observing Venus when it is uh, high enough. Um, perhaps even more so than than the other planets. Strangely enough, I don't know why. I think perhaps it is just because it's traditionally uh, seen as something that is very difficult to see any features on, and perhaps like like some people are saying that you can't see features on it, but. And I also like observing it with my small telescope. So I was out on Friday evening just with my 60 millimeter Takahashi, but I was just running it in the F6 mode, which does have a little bit of color. I was using a contrast booster uh, and or a neutral density filter and was able to very clearly pick out tonal differences and some shading. In particular, like you referenced the bright polar region. In the north, I could see uh, two very large white patches sort of semi-bisected by a bit of a dark, dusky feature. And they were exceptionally bright, exceptionally white, very much like a large polar cap on Mars would be bright, although the view of these is a little bit different than what a polar cap looks like. Then the rest of the planet, I could see that there was sort of this large bisecting shadow almost looked like like a pale version of Sirtis Major. And then in and around that feature, you could sense that the planet wasn't this bright white. It was more of a very subtle yellow or had like a yellowish tone to it, very much like one of the paler yellow tones on Saturn has. And I don't know that I'd quite uh, recognize the actual true color of, of Venus, um, Prior to that, typically I would have just said it was white or an off-white or something like that, but definitely it had a yellow tone to it. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I've never looked at Venus with a contrast boosting filter because that sometimes imparts just a slight tone to it as well. Uh, now that Venus is at a favorable observing altitude, I'm I'm going to you know start observing it as well. I've observed some of those details in trying to think here. My 63 millimeter Zeiss telemeter. Uh, my 76 millimeter tack. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the, the 120 ED. So you can definitely see this stuff in, you know, very modest, uh, small apertures. And, you know, in some cases it might even be somewhat beneficial to have a smaller aperture just to control some of that brightness that Venus reflects back to us. Cause it's, you know, it's exceptionally bright and I, you know, I'm just speculating, but if you had too much aperture, uh, some of that brightness could wash out the features be because the features are so subtle. So that might also be part of the reason too, Chris, why some people question if there's anything to see, because if they're using 10 or 12 inch scopes, that might be the reason, right? Some of that light gathering is washing out your ability to see some of these finer details. And I think that the planet does sort of shimmer and shine quite a bit. It is really prone to the cooling of the telescope. You know, when I first put it on to Venus, it was just a horrible mess out of focus and getting that focus dialed right in critically. I have my wife out there looking through and typically she doesn't adjust the focus in the telescope when we're looking at anything else. We've tried it before and she's like, it's, it's fine. 
Um, basically, her focus, focal point is the same as mine. But when we're looking at Venus, she has to tweak it a little bit. Otherwise, she just gets all this big spiky glare. So focus on it is very critical. And then as well, it's the power. I think a lot of the time, like for example, on Friday night, I put a five millimeter in, which I think gives me around 78 or 80 power or something. And it's giving me a lot of spikiness. I'm just able to start to see some of this dusky features. With that kind of power, uh, you're really sort of getting like the worst view of of what can be seen. And you really need to get up into those higher powers, like with the 60, like 100, 120 power. Those are kind of the ideal powers. And if you can't get a good image at those higher powers, then it's just not a good night to be observing Venus. You really do need, need to be able to put power on. In the four inch, it's like 180 to 200 power is where you can start to observe Venus. And then with larger scopes, it's just going to increase that power even more. You just need to be able to get the planet large enough to be able to see those things. And like you said, to spread that light out. Otherwise, the just the pure luminosity of the planet just overwhelms any of those dusky features. For anybody listening, if you have a, a telescope, no matter the size, get out there and, and take some uh, observations of Venus and uh, spend a little bit of time at the eyepiece, you know, try some different magnifications, try some different filters if you have them and just see if you're able to tease out some of those details. It's quite rewarding if you, if you are able to see them. I hear from people all the time. I have people in my class go out and buy like a 70 millimeter Acromat. I know there's lots of those around. Um, we get emails from people all the time that buy like a smaller starter scope. Those are great little telescopes. Maybe, yeah, try your hand at this and uh, see what uh, you're able to see on Venus. It's uh, well worth your while. Shane, I also had a long view of the moon mm. with my 3.5 millimeter, 100 power on the moon with my little 60 millimeter is ideal because it gives me about three quarters of a field. It just frames the moon perfectly. I just, just love the view of all those craters under decent power, basically filling nearly, but not quite the entire field of view of the telescope. So 3.5 millimeter, is that your Pentax XW? Yeah, it gives about 101 power, I think, on that telescope. Hmm, right on. Had a look at uh, Uranus as well. Hunted that down because it was right beside the moon that night. We could see like the sort of aqua bluish kind of disc, sort of a greenish blue. Other than that, that's all we could observe. Hmm. Well, sounds like a, a really good night observing, actually. And we have some exciting stuff coming up this month, Shane, with uh, Mercury and Venus, a couple other things going on. So in all my time doing these, I've never seen one where I could say you can observe Mercury for three weeks. Yeah, I, I just reading this, I'm thinking or I'm asking the same question, I guess. Uh, and, and yeah, I don't recall it ever being that long. So Mercury is the innermost planet in our solar system orbits in 88 days and this year mercury is going to give us one of the best evening apparitions reaching greatest elongation which is 19 degrees from the sun which is pretty typical it's usually between like like, like 19 and 26 degrees mm -hmm. but the time of year and the because of the angle of inclination with the earth so the earth has a tilt and that tilt impacts how we see the ecliptic and the ecliptic is the path of the planets mm -hmm. and because of where mercury is at this time of year and because of its own orbit around the sun we're intersecting it at such a point that we see it 10 days before 
its greatest elongation, which is on April 11th. And then we can watch it for about 10 days afterwards. Around April 1st, it should become relatively easily visible about 30 minutes after sunset. Now, Shane, when we're talking about these inner planets, there's one thing people have to be very careful about. What might that thing be? Well, it's the sun. These inner planets are very close to the sun, particularly Mercury. Venus is, you know, less uh, less risky, but uh, because Mercury is so close to the sun, you really want to make sure that the sun is not remotely visible, that it's well past sunset uh, before you attempt to put any kind of optics on Mercury. The way that I would do it is, and because you have a period of time here, make sure you find a spot. This is going to be the evening sky. You're going to set your alarm clock or something for five minutes after sunset, then start setting up your telescope. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to wait a little bit even after that. Well, depending on how long it takes to to set up your scope. And if you have a really big telescope, uh, maybe use a smaller telescope for this one. But about 30 minutes after sunset is when you might get to take your first peek at it because it's going to be exceptionally bright chain at negative one magnitude that places it amongst uh, very rare stars and planets that are that brighter, brighter. Yeah. Yeah. That is extremely bright. One of the challenges too, with Mercury is, you know, being able to locate it in a bit of a twilight sky where there's still some brightness there. Cause typically it doesn't shine very bright or bright enough to poke through that twilight glow. But, uh, at that level of magnitude, it's going to make it a lot easier. It is going to get fainter the longer we have it. Should still be visible towards the end of this apparition, but the beginning of this apparition, when it is around negative one magnitude, that's going to be the best time to see it. It's going to appear like an orange flickering star dancing in the twilight glow. I feel like that's almost poetic, but that's what it looks like. Have you have you had an opportunity to see Mercury before? I know takes so long time. Sometimes people need a few kicks of the can to get it, but just visually, I've seen it multiple times visually, but I've never really put optics on it because typically, uh, when I've seen it, I've just been out doing other things and happen to catch it on the horizon. I always remember may have been my first view, our kitchen window. We had this big, uh, backyard as many of the backyards are in Canada and you could, you could see due West. And I remember my parents discovered I was interested in astronomy, they always be like, hey, what's that star? Be Venus or whatever poking out. And then when I bought my telescope, I remember Mercury was in the back of my mind. And my dad said, hey, like, what's that other star? I remember Venus is the other one, but what's that one? And I was like, holy cow, that's Mercury. And, and I remember it was just barely sunset. I got up, like left my meal, went out, set up my eight inch daub and then put it on Mercury. And I remember my grandmother and she passed away uh, within months after this, but she came out and she was like, what are you doing? I've always wanted to to look through this, this thing, but usually I'm in bed by the time you have it set up. I said, I'm looking at the planet Mercury. And I remember she was really not much for nonsense as she would put it, kind of looked at me skeptically, came over and bent over and just looked in. She was somebody like me who liked to talk quite a bit. And she just looked for about two solid minutes and then looked at me and said, how about that? And then walked it like it really just left her speechless, which was something to say for her. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. So just seeing Mercury, though, it can be a challenge just to even see it at all. So you really need to have that good Western horizon this time around, eh? Yeah, you really do. And fortunate for us, we live in one of the flattest places in the world. So <laughs> it's pretty easy for us to, to have an unobstructed view. 
we can see below the horizon almost here. It's pretty cool. Have you ever seen it through a telescope or have you always just looked at Mercury just with your eye, just to even try to pick it up? Uh, just visually. Yeah. I've, yeah, I don't think it has been through a telescope, but I would have to check my notes. Uh, all of my memories of it are, are just visual. I've been one of those odd ducks who's actually tried to look at it through a telescope. It is very challenging. Even when I was younger, I, I set up the eight inch daub, put it on Mercury a whole pile of times, and it's just an orange blob. In fact, I think it probably for the most part looks better just to the naked eye than it does through any kind of optical uh, aid. I've had a few good views of it though, maybe maybe two good views in all the years where the telescope shows something ill-defined markings on the planet, much like, uh, you know, extremely more subtle than even what you see on Venus. Boy, the planet is just a blurry mess. And I find when you're, when you're looking at it, it's so orange and I'll sometimes even use an orange filter that it almost like strains my eye and brings like tears to my eye when I'm, when I'm looking. Um, it's just, uh, it's so difficult to really see anything at all on the planet, but just seeing the planet Mercury, I think that that's well worthwhile doing just, just to say that you saw this planet in the evening twilight. We get this uh, greatest elongation on April 11th, though, about 10 days prior, it's still really bright leading up to the greatest elongation. It's going to be zero magnitude. And during the first part of this, during the first 10 days, it's in a uh, waning gibbous phase. It looks like a three-quarter moon set on its edge for us, Shane, sort of almost like uh, towards the ground of the round part of Venus. And then there's going to be a terminator, and that's going to be pointing towards the north. And then by the 11th, when it's at greatest elongation, which is going to be its highest point and the furthest distance away from the sun, it's going to be just under sort of a half crescent phase. And then going to have a very slim, much larger crescent towards the end of this apparition around the 20th or 21st. And then we're just going to see this slim crescent of Venus. By that point, Shane, unfortunately, it's only glowing at about magnitude 2.3. Oh, wow. That's quite a difference. Yeah. So it starts at negative one, which should make it fairly easy to see in evening twilight. And this will be good training because if you do get a good string of clear nights as it's getting closer to us and as it's getting fainter because we're not getting as much of an illuminated disk of Mercury, it's going to help to have your eye trained and to be able to pick it out. In fact, even when it's pretty bright, usually it takes me a day or two to even track it down. But once you get that spot located, then on subsequent nights, you're going to be much more easily able to pick it up. So that's, that's my recipe for having a good view of Mercury. And if you are able to get a telescope on it, probably at the very least, you'll be able to see that gibbous sort of quarter phase and then finally the crescent phase. It would be neat. I hope to be able to do drawings within a few days of the 1st, within a few days of the 11th, and then within a few days of the 20th. Great opportunity for everybody. April 6th, we're going to have a full moon, and this time it's going to be directly beside Spica, hmm. which is the brightest star in Virgo. Yeah, that'll be a, a neat pairing. And for the astrophotographers out there, that might be uh, an interesting opportunity. Yeah, I think it'll be neat when it's rising. I think it's rising, of course, just as it's getting dark on mm. this sort of mid uh, or early spring evening of uh, April 6th. And hopefully that means that we're getting into some uh, warmer weather observing. I know I could use some warmer weather. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready for that too. 
We're still getting down into the negative 20s. Uh, supposed to be negative 23 tonight, Shane. Yeah, I know. I, I'm, <laughs> I've heard that we'll be like this until the end of April. So you're going to say until the end of time. Well, that's possible too. <laughs> yeah. The snow is slowly melting, but uh, not quick enough. I was reading that within 24 hours of a full moon, the moon is something like 40% brighter. I'm not aware of that, actually. That's first. This this is the first time I've heard of that. Maybe uh, I'm misremembering or, or dreamed it up or something, but definitely the full moon is very bright. And because of that, we typically don't go out to the dark sky sites because they won't be dark sky sites at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. April 11th, we have Venus and the Pleiades in conjunction. I think they're a few degrees. I think they're like three degrees apart. So in a pair of binoculars or a really low power telescope, you'd be able to see Venus uh, and the Pleiades. Yeah, again, a, a very neat pairing. And for the astrophotographers out there, that would be a great opportunity, uh, you know, to get a, a beautiful open cluster along with, you know, a very bright planet. April 13th is going to be one of the best nights to see the Gaganshin, which is a faint, I put a faint bright spot. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I guess, a, uh, a luminous faint but slightly more luminous than the background area of the sky opposite the sun. The last quarter moon is going to sit between Sagittarius and Capricornus that night. But around midnight, if you go out on April 13th, you're going to see, uh, hopefully straight up overhead, if you're at a very dark site, you'll see this sort of luminous spot somewhere in the overhead region. And what that is, it's the sunlight passing by the earth, dimly illuminating a piece of the sky that's overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like a bit of a comparison. If anybody's ever seen the zodiacal light, the Gagan sheen is somewhat similar in that it just almost appears like kind of almost like light pollution or a slightly illuminated cloud, maybe, except the Gagan sheen is much more difficult to see than the zodiacal light. You, you certainly do need a dark sky for that. And it's the same type of phenomenon where it's the sunlight that's reflecting off interplanetary dust. It's just overhead this time instead of in the east or west. Yeah. Have you ever seen this little pattern of triangular stars there just to the left of the teapot in Sagittarius? Sort of looks like a kite. Um, I'm not sure that I have, Chris. So on that same night, April 13th, or I guess it would be the morning of of the 13th that we're looking at here, the moon is going to be just to the right of a little set of four stars. Now, I don't know how easy it's going to be to see those four stars, maybe with a pair of binoculars or something, because the bright side of the moon is going to be right next to them. But it's a it's a nice pointer that night. This is one of my favorite little asterisms. And what this is, is the Terabellum asterism, named after the uh, bright star Omega Sagittarii, which is uh, also known from the IAU uh, with the proper name of Terabellum. And this grouping forms a diamond or little cross-shaped quadrangle, and it comprises Omega Sagittarii, as well as the stars with the Flamsteed numbers 59, 60, and 62. So 60 and 59 sort of form the uh, outriggers on on the cross or the uh, fat part of the diamond, and then 62 forms, uh, I guess, like the, the tip of the diamond. And apparently this has been recognized since antiquity. I'd often known that as Ptolemy's quadrangle. I couldn't find that source when I was just looking really quick, but uh, that's something that I've known it is and uh, not something that I just made up. The uh, boring tool is another 
one of the uh, names for this little asterism, I guess, because uh, you might use like the the cross members to hold on to and then uh, to be able to turn and then bore um, 62 directly into the ground or, or something. But these stars aren't overwhelmingly bright. They're magnitude 4.5. So you need to be at a dark sky site to see them. They look beautiful from the grasslands. There's no bright stars in this region. And that's what makes this little asterism pop. And it's also been known in the Chinese language as a region of the dog territory. So it's uh, it's a region that's been uh, sort of spoken about by a variety of different cultures dating back for thousands of years. Pretty neat, eh? Yeah, yeah, very neat. Well, I guess, as you mentioned early in the morning, you, you could see this, but uh, something to also put in your observing uh, lists for this coming summer when Sagittarius is uh, more prominent in the evening. Yeah. And when you get out to a dark sky site, or if you're camping this spring and you get up and it's clear, but you don't want to set up the telescope or you're tired or whatever, just look towards the Southeast and look for this grouping of stars that sits right between Sagittarius and Capricornus. There's not much else that's there. They're magnitude four and a half, so it needs to be a dark sky site because they're very low down. You'll be able to pull those out, and it's kind of a neat little pattern of stars to see on the southern horizon. Yeah, that's awesome. April 16th, we have Saturn just three degrees north of the moon in the northern sky. For those in Europe, and they're super far away for us here in Saskatchewan, Shane, so not really much for us to see there. Well, I wouldn't be waking up for it anyway. No, you're not You're not an early morning observer. Nope, nope. April 20th is the new moon, and there's also a hybrid annular solar eclipse. Do you know what? Oh. I had to look this up. Do you know what a hybrid annular solar eclipse is? <laughs> no, this is, this is the first time I've heard of a hybrid annular solar eclipse. I, I'm quite familiar with annular, but uh, tell, tell us about hybrid. What's a regular eclipse and what's an annular eclipse? A total solar eclipse is when uh, the distance, uh, so the the moon passes in front of the sun and the distance between the the moon and us here on earth is such that the moon essentially blocks out all of the sun or very, very close to a hundred percent. And it's a spectacular event to see. There's going to be a total solar eclipse visible in North America in 2024 within like 12 months prior uh, to that eclipse occurring, there's an annular. And what that means is the moon will pass in front of the sun or a portion of the sun, but the distance now uh, of the moon to earth is such that it doesn't block out all of the sunlight. So you basically are seeing kind of a partial eclipse. The moon is much further away, so it's too far to fully blot out the sun. So it passes over it. And then you always need to use solar protection to view an annular solar eclipse. Whereas in a fully eclipsed sun, you can very briefly during that moment of totality, remove your solar protection and then look at the solar corona. The annular solar eclipse, you can never look at without optical eye protection because uh, it will damage your eyes. And the annular solar eclipse just looks like a dark spot and then a big bright ring around the moon where the sun is still uh, shining across. So the hybrid is basically a combination of the two where we're going to have an annular solar eclipse at sunrise and an annular solar eclipse at sunset, but it's going to be a total solar eclipse in the middle. Hmm. Interesting. The eclipse can only be seen from Indonesia. Okay. It does cross part of Western Australia, 
Barrow Island, which is a uh, heavily protected conservation preserve. That is not a place that you can actually go and land. Um, people are not allowed on that island. So the best spot may be from cruise ship or something like that. I'm sure there's like a cruise that's going on. No Sky and Telescope typically does those things. Uh, that would be pretty cool to see, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. That would be amazing. Later that day, though, we have a bit of a consolation prize here, Shane, in that we can see a very young moon that's only 21 hours old when the moon is five degrees above the horizon. So the sun is going to set. Again, you want to make sure that you're being solar safe. You're not going to go out and do anything looking anywhere near the sun until well after that sun is below the horizon, according to your local time. And then you can actually see the moon just sitting there just above the Western horizon. I actually did this this week with my class. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. We went out and the moon wasn't quite that young, but I think it was about 30 hours old. So it was pretty neat. Yeah. Young moons are very pretty to me. I, I love the very thin crescent. Sometimes it'll take you a few minutes in order to actually locate it. But once you do, they're super cool to look at. On April 21st for the middle of North America, we'll see a beautiful lineup of Mercury, the moon, and Venus all lined up in the evening sky. So this is probably about the last chance to see Mercury. And I would have docked another day or two off of the Mercury apparition because it is faint. However, with the moon sitting nearby and with Venus shining brightly overhead, you're going to be very easily able to track the line of the ecliptic, which will point you directly towards Mercury. So that's what makes this Mercury apparition very easy to see is even as it becomes fainter, we're going to be able to use Venus and then the moon to point us towards Mercury and get some long views of it. Hmm, right on. April 22nd, the moon pairs up with the Pleiades, but not for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, for who? I, I think again, it's going to favor uh, people that are in Europe. Basically, I think everybody but us, we we get the worst view of the moon close to the Pleiades. It's nowhere near us. But on the 23rd, the moon and Venus are going to be as close as 1.3 degrees for some in the nighttime sky. And that's going to people in maybe Eastern North America, but like the UK and Western Europe are going to have a much better view of that. April 26th, Mars is going to be three degrees south of the moon. And we get this one. I think we get this one at its best. There's these lunar Mars pairings. We've been on a roll here in the middle of North America where we live, Shane, and that's going to be a nice pairing for us to see on that night. So those of us that have been going out and observing the moon and Mars and the occultation that we had back in early December and all the other pairings that we've had each month, here we have another one to view. Yeah. Mars will be quite small, but still, uh, still very pretty, particularly uh, if you have a telescope that can develop or deliver a three degree field of view. So if you have a small little telescope, like our 60 millimeters or an, or an 80 millimeter refractor, use your low power eyepiece, you'll be able to see the moon and the planet will just look like a little disc. I don't think you'll be able to see much in the way of features on little Mars at that point. Yeah, not likely. April 27th, we have the first quarter moon, which signals sort of the end of deep sky observing. But you know, Shane, all month we have these beautiful views of Venus, and it should just be getting better and better as it approaches its greatest evening elongation on June 4th. 
Yeah. Well, that, that's great. You know, especially for us, Chris, you know, as the temperatures warm up, the views of Venus also uh, are warming up, <laughs> you know, it's getting better and better. So great timing. Considering how high it is right now, these views could be spectacular. Yeah. The best ones that we've had since I really started my, my big Venus campaign during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I will uh, reignite my campaign as well. Uh, this is a this is a great opportunity. These variables don't always align, you know, every year for ideal conditions. Similar to uh, the Mars opposition, every two years, some are better than others, and this appears to be uh, one of the great years to uh, observe Venus. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get like months here, and it's just going to hang out there in the evening sky. It's going to give us some spectacular views, so long as we get the the sky for observing it. The beginning of April, Venus is at negative four and it's going to be 14.1 arc seconds across. So pretty good size. It's in like this gibbous phase, about 77% of a gibbous phase. The end of the month of April, the gibbous phase is going to be 66% and the magnitude increases by 0.1. So it's negative 4.1 and it's going to be 17 arc seconds across. So it's getting bigger and it's getting brighter, but the planet itself is appearing to go into more of a crescent phase. We're going to be getting into about a half phase of Venus as we get into May. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it as well because it's already showing some some neat features and we're going to have a long time with Venus. And I love it as a target when the moon is around and we're not able to go deep sky observing. It's fun to have uh, something like Venus to take a peek at. Yeah, for sure. How about some comet Shane? Do you have any sort of commentary picks? Um, not that I've researched. I see that you've got one noted here. I'll let you speak to that one. It's not that exciting. I was hoping you found a better one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> There's comets, or should I say comet? There's really just one comet people might be able to see. 10th magnitude C2020 V2ZTF, another comet from the Zwicky Transit Facility. This isn't the other comet uh, ZTF we were looking at earlier in the year. It's in Triangulum, so it's a little bit low down. And this one is predicted to brighten to magnitude 9.5 by mid-September. So it's not going to get really that bright, although it's in a pretty easy spot to find there in Triangulum. If people are curious, they can uh, look it up on their software. But this is definitely a comet for people that have uh, pretty good size amateur telescopes, unfortunately. In general, we're not really expecting any super bright comets uh, this calendar year. It looks like the brightest one will be uh, 103P Hartley 2, uh, which might reach magnitude 7. But again, you, you'll still need optics for that. But we always put the caveat out there with comets. You just really never know with any of these. Uh, some of them can far exceed their forecasted magnitudes and some never even get close. So it's always good to keep an eye on what's going on with comets. And, you know, we certainly will. And if any of these ones look to brighten up, we'll bring awareness to it here uh, on the podcast. One thing I saw in the past couple of weeks, I think this one's a little bit too far out to get uh, too excited over is that uh, comet C2023A3. It's going to brighten towards the end of the year and then perhaps uh, peak out in early 2024. So we'll just have to watch that one and see. I do have a wild card comet if you want to hear about that. Yeah. This one, uh, 29P Schwassman Watchman, 
is up on the uh, Gemini Origae border, and it's it's fairly faint. It's in the 11th magnitude, so you're going to need at least an 8-inch scope in a dark sky to see it. However, this comet has been known to have big, bright outbursts in the past, sometimes as bright as first magnitude. Wow. Ooh, that would be exciting. Yeah. Typically, though, the outbursts last like a few days, so we would probably hear about it from listeners and everybody else, but uh, that's one thing people should be aware of since by the time we would hear about it, we wouldn't be able to get an episode out in time for mm. uh, people now. Mm-hmm. And then that's pretty much it. Do you have any double stars, Shane? Typically what I do when I look up a double star for this episode is I just go to the RASC, so Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. They have a double star observing program and it's split up by the seasons. Uh, I highly recommend anybody who's interested in double stars to check out that list. It's on their website, rasc.ca. There's an excellent guide that describes all of the double stars on the list. It's separated by season. Uh, So there's an awful lot of double stars on there that are beautiful. And I think just about all of them are pretty... I'll say easy to separate, you know, given the aperture of telescopes that most people have, I I don't think there's too many challenges on that list, which makes it uh, just a very enjoyable, uh, observing initiative to work through. Thanks for that. Anything else to add to the show? That's all Chris. Great. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to like and subscribe to the show and share it with the other stargazers and amateur astronomers that you know. We can always be reached with your observations, questions, and anything else you wish to share with us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.